Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, Jesus, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell you of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. There's that word. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Jesus said these words when under trial by Pilate. This trial eventually led to his crucifixion, meaning Jesus' words here were by no means whimsical or haphazard. What did Jesus mean when he said to Pilate then, my kingdom is not of this world? And I think it forces two important questions if we're going to try to understand what he meant. First question, what kind of citizens of Jesus' kingdom are we to envision? Meaning, what kind of Christians should we envision as we long for more Christians in this world? Now, here's what I mean. If we're honest as Christ followers, then we don't hide the fact that we want as many people to be Christians along with us, as I've already said. But we need to ask ourselves, do we want people to be Christians merely in works and external behavior, merely intellectual understanding. And so I want to use a term there to be Christianized, right? They can look and sound and act Christian. Or do we desire Christians who are genuinely Christians by faith, from the heart, filled with the Holy Spirit, obeying God's law from a heart, mind, and will, genuinely and inwardly transformed by God's grace? The Christian life looked at one way. It's very simple. Christianity is not meant to be complicated. You live by grace, through faith, overflowing into good works. And so that naturally leads to the bigger question, what kind of kingdom of Christ do we envision? Again, thinking about the Christian framework of faith versus works is helpful. And it's helpful to distinguish between a kingdom of works versus a kingdom of faith. We look at history and certainly the church has made a lot of effort, and even if you want to call it success, we Christianized a lot of nations and people. And so in some sense, there was a kingdom of Christian works, but was there, were these Christianized nations really truly kingdoms of faith? 
We have to distinguish between a Christianized person or nation versus a truly born-again Christian people and nation. Christianized might look Christian externally and in behavior, but it is not necessarily genuinely Christian. And so this is even straight off the bat a bit of a, a warning for those who sit in church pews every Sunday. Am I just Christianized and trying to live by Christian morals, or am I seeking to be inwardly transformed? And so I think this is what Jesus meant by saying his kingdom is not of this world. Jesus was envisioning a kingdom, a government, his kingship in an unseen world to come that required faith to expect it and to see it and to enter it and to be welcomed as a citizen of it one day on that final day. Now, Pilate, on the other hand, in that trial, was giving Jesus a chance to prove that he had good works, that Jesus was not a criminal as the Jews were accusing him, and that Jesus was indeed deserving by his moral record to be set free. Pilate was trying to set him free, to earn his freedom in a worldly kingdom of works. Now, as we pick up our summer in the Psalm series, we kick off with Psalm 2. Psalm 1 has already been preached. And so each summer, we're going to just hit on a Psalm that we haven't hit. And so Psalm 2, simply put, is about Jesus being our King. And Psalm 2 teaches us how to relate to Jesus as the King of all kings. And so today, it's my prayer that our hearts might cry out to God, but there might be a a, a true faith response in our hearts with a prayer with words like, Jesus, you are, you are my king, and your kingdom is near. Meaning you're agreeing with what Jesus himself said. Repent, because the kingdom is near. And himself declaring himself as the Messiah. So it's also my prayer that our faith might overflow into a good work, a real change in some manner as this. So help me as I declare that by faith, as I believe that you're my king by faith, your kingdom is near, help me to see and live all of life through the lens of your kingship and coming kingdom. All of us live with a lens. If we're honest and we do the hard work of becoming self-aware, all of us have an ultimate lens that makes the most sense of our lives. And Christianity is a call to, to, by faith, see Jesus as king and to see all of our life through this lens of his kingship and his coming kingdom. And so we want to ask today, how do I live out Jesus' kingship in my life day to day? And I want to do my best to draw out uh, three things that I see in, in Psalm 2. First, by checking my own heart's allegiance, my own heart's uh, greatest allegiance. Second, by embracing God's narrative as ultimately and supremely true, and by finding, third, worshipful refuge in Jesus. So my heart's allegiance, God's narrative, his story, and worshipful refuge in Jesus. So let's dive in. How do I live out Jesus' kingship in my life day to day? By checking first my own heart's strongest allegiance. Allegiance, our heart's allegiance. There are lots of synonyms we could use, and so I'll throw some out there just to help us understand what we mean by an allegiance, our heart's allegiance. A friend, just catching up with a friend, she told me about some counseling she received, and the counselor referred to attachments of the heart, and that you can have ordered attachments versus disordered attachments, and part of the point is that there's a pecking order 
of prioritized attachments in our hearts. And so if we have an unhealthy attachment that is really important to us, that can take our life down the wrong path and make it messy. And vice versa, if we have healthy attachments to the right things and they're important to us, then it can order our lives. At Trinity Grace Church, we talk a lot about our affections. Same thing, just another way to talk about it. And we feel good talking about our affections because the New Testament uses that category. The New Testament often speaks to our affections and desires, bringing them into question in relation to our, what should be our deepest affection for God and the things above. The Old Testament uses the notion of idols and serving false gods versus worshiping the one true God to address our heart's allegiances, our heart's attachments, affections. This is why Joshua, in the namesake book, Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, in the context of choosing between God or the false gods that Israel had been delivered from, he says, choose this day whom you will serve, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so the whole language and metaphor of idols and false gods and who do you choose to serve. Now, where do we see the notion of allegiance in our hearts in Psalm 2 today? Right off the bat, Psalm 2 begins, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Why do the nations rage? This is a matter of the heart. This is an emotion word. Rage is emotion. There are emotions involved here. Rage specifically in today's psalm means to be angered because of things out of control. Things being in a state of chaos and disorder. And so, look, whenever you experience especially strong emotions in your life, you need to pay attention in those moments. Because your strong emotions are usually a good window into what matters to you the most in your heart. What your strongest heart allegiance is. For example, let's get real. Why do some of us get angry if the house is messy? (laughs) Right? Because we value order for a sense of peace and quiet in our hearts and minds, which means we try to put extra energy into controlling our environment, keeping it tidy and in order, which means when something or someone threatens our sense of peace, we become upset and angry, okay? If I'm honest, you know, bearing my soul before you, my little patch of control is, is my, my front lawn, you know? <laughs> and, and trying to keep the, the, the chaos of weeds out. Don't, don't ask me about, you know, what it's like when I'm, in my office window and seeing a neighbor walk by and then its dog is doing its business on my lawn. (laughs) Definitely my heart allegiances are revealed there. Why do we get devastated if we don't get the promotion we are working so hard toward, especially if we're overlooked by someone we, we believe is less qualified than us? I hope you're seeing the point with me. We get emotional because something or someone is deeply important to us and it's being threatened. Why are we so passionate to the point of anger about certain social issues? Because those issues sit in the highest places in our hearts. So the psalmist brings the rulers of the world to account, diagnostically asking why. Why are you raging? Meaning, what is going on in your heart, your desires, that you rage against the Lord and his will? 
What's so important to you that you rage? But there's more. The kings and nations not only rage, but the psalmist says they plot in vain. The literal translation here is murmuring with a spirit of arrogance and vanity. The picture we're to see is one of disgruntled, arrogant, I-know-it-all, irreverent muttering behind the Lord's back, so to speak. To illustrate, if you follow politics, do you recall those videos that have popped up scandalously when a global leader doesn't realize their mic is still hot and they disparage another global leader behind his or her back? And then it's exposed and there's scandal. The psalmist is describing something similar when it comes to the kings and queens, the rulers of the world and history and their attitude toward God and his anointed one, his, his Jesus. Now, before we let ourselves off the hook, because that's my initial attitude, like, okay, this is addressing geopolitical kings and queens and rulers. What does this have to do with me? Before we let ourselves off the hook, I think the whole counsel of Scripture would make us pause, and if we're humble enough to realize the Scripture is saying, wait a second, you're not off the hook, as easily as you'd like to think. And this is why we need to think about the second point. How do I live out Jesus' kingship in my life day to day? First, not only examine your, your allegiances in your heart, but second, by embracing God's story, God's narrative as ultimately and supremely true. Now, this is an idea that we come back to a lot at Trinity Grace Church because every day, there are counter-narratives to the gospel, counter-narratives to God's will for his people that are fighting for our attention, diluting our, and distracting us in terms of our passion for Christ and to follow him. And so we need to keep coming back to this again and again. So we shouldn't be surprised that it pops up in Psalm 2. And so what do we mean? I mean, let me just give a real example. Just, it's June in Toronto. It's not an elephant in the room any longer in our culture. It's, it's Pride Month in Toronto. And our culture is at a place where the tables overall have turned over the past 40 years or so of acceptable, what is acceptable, normal sexual ethics, morals, lifestyles. And these days, the, the new elephant in the room in our culture is actually the presence of people who don't immediately and indiscriminately support any and every lifestyle. Christians generally get placed in this category. It's not just Christians, there are others. We get placed, and we're the elephant in the room. The reason I bring this up, this reality up in today's culture, is because at the very core of what has driven our culture to where it is now, and here let's just, we're in June specifically to gender and sexual rights and so forth. What has driven our culture that is the never to be underestimated power of personal narrative, personal story. You look at any powerful social movement in history that has had success, mixed in there somewhere is the powerful ingredient, the powerful determined engine of personal narrative. 
What's my story? What's my desire? What's my definition of happiness? What story, what narrative makes the most sense of my life? What's my power? What's my voice? What's my truth? And this is why Pilate asked Jesus, remember we started with Jesus' question at his trial? He's saying, my kingdom is not of this world. And, and Pilate, he asked as a follow-up, what is truth? The postmodern spirit is nothing new. People being subjective and relativistic, it's nothing new. It's been there. When Jesus was under trial with Pilate, what's truth? Who says what truth is? Challenging God's absolute truth in favor of a relativistic, self-serving, self-interested, and self-convenient truth has been there even all the way back to the fall since Satan tempted Adam and Eve to Pilate asking Jesus, what is the truth? Going back to the fall, Satan began to make God's absolute truth relative by asking, did God really say? Starting to relativize it. And Satan also knew to play to Adam and Eve's emotions and desires by spotlighting the attractiveness of the forbidden fruit. And so it's no different in Psalm 2. The kings and rulers of the world challenge the Lord's ultimate narrative. Where do we see the Lord's supreme and ultimate story, his storyline for history? You see it in verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. There it is. That's God's narrative, that there is a king. And they say instead, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, these two, uh, verse two here, it really could have been taken out of something like J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings trilogy. It's got an epic feel to it, doesn't it? Just imagine the movie scene, the kings of the earth gathering in rebellion, trying to you know, usurp God. Now, we shouldn't be surprised because Psalm 2, again, it's a powerful, beautiful summary of God's grand, supreme, and eternal storyline, his narrative for history. And so what is it? What is God's supreme and eternal ultimate narrative? Of all the narratives that we are tempted to make sense of life with, God has decreed one overarching narrative as eternally true. What is it? It's simply this. Jesus is king, and his is the only eternal kingdom. That's it. If you can just focus on that, chew on that for the rest of your life, it'll do you well. Now let me flesh it out a bit. When we go back to creation, God actually wanted us involved and to enjoy the joy of Christ's kingship, and and so we see in Genesis 1 that he actually made you and me to be vice kings, like a vice president, a vice king. And God blessed them. Adam and Eve said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. This is where we get that from. And you can make a clear, strong theological argument, like God created us to be vice kings, to rule with Christ, even under him, even as we rule under him.
But what happened? Adam and Eve and all humanity to this day rebelled, seeking to usurp usurp and, and dethrone God as the king of all kings. Now, as a consequence, it's good to just always remember these, this big storyline. We've been cast out of his kingdom forever, and our eternal destiny otherwise is banishment under God's wrath. And so we, what do we do? We continue to try and build our own little kingdoms by our own work and toil, our own superiority and pride. And what Jesus has done, why he comes into history, he's made an upside-down way for us to be welcomed back into God's kingdom. Jesus' way for us to be reconciled to himself is beautiful because instead of being the typical superior, lording it overall, stepping on other people to lift himself up kind of king, he's the complete opposite. He comes to the earth to be a suffering king, a suffering king, a servant king, one whose perfect work and ultimate sacrifice on the cross for you and me, substituting himself for you and me, would ransom and redeem us rebels by grace through faith. And so now, trying to help you see this as a lens for life, our life, we seek to enter Jesus' kingdom of faith by trusting Jesus' work instead of our own by relinquishing our own works and attempting to save ourselves. That's it. That's the story. Jesus' kingship over ours. So everything, truly everything in life makes the most sense if you can wrestle, that's part of what discipleship is, personally wrestling through how does my job, how does my motherhood, my fatherhood, my being a brother or sister, a family member, how does me being a friend, how does resting and recreation, my finances, how does really everything in life, how does this fit into this story of Jesus's kingship over ours? Now, what do we seek to do instead? The psalmist is right. We set ourselves against the one true king, and we seek to burst our bonds with God and cast away the cords that tie us to God. This is covenantal language. The imagery here is one of two people being bound to one another. And when God created Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve were born into God's first covenant of works. All they had to do was perform and obey those commands and everything would go well. There'd be eternal life, no sickness, no death. And you and I, by virtue of just being descendants of of Adam and Eve, we are born into that covenant of works as well. Whether you realize it or not, whether you like it or not, you're actually bound to that covenant of works. I mean, that's why you look out on the world, it's so performance-driven. It's just living out that original first arrangement with God. And we think that we can break covenant with God, that we can somehow free ourselves from being bound to him. And we like to adopt for ourselves in no particular order many other individual and national narratives, alternative storylines that we look to to give us meaning in life apart from God and his kingdom. So I'm just going to run through a list and, and test your heart as you hear these, this list. Am I making what he just mentioned ultimate, perhaps, in my life? Perhaps our job. 
our children and their success, our physical and financial security, our comfort, our health, our social status, our recreation and play, our politics, our economy, our multiculturalism as as a nation, our inclusiveness as a culture, prioritizing this present life on this earth alone versus living in view of eternity and on and on and on. That, That list barely scratches the surface. But the point is that Psalm 2 is calling out not only literal geopolitical kings, queens, and rulers of nations through history, but no, if we take the Bible as a whole, if we understand from Genesis to Revelation, every one of us is a vice king, and every one of us, apart from God, is seeking to build our own little kingdom. Every one of us has a throne in our hearts, And we choose, ultimately, at the end of the day, who sits with authority on that throne in our hearts. Ultimately boiling down to me or God. This is why I said earlier that we're not off the hook as quote-unquote regular people. Just because we're not geopolitical kings, queens, rulers of nations does not mean we're not accountable to Psalm 2. And it's warning against kings. So let me make a special note about nations here. How do the histories and narratives of nations fit into God's greater story? We get an important clue in Revelation 21, and I'll just read it for you. Revelation is the last book of the Bible, and it gives us a beautiful vision, what Christians call our blessed hope, what we can look forward to. And so here, the description of what we're to look forward to. I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By, pay attention to this part, by its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, meaning the new heavens and the new earth. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. This is the final reality. So notice, there are nations in the new heavens and new earth. Notice, that there are kings in the new heaven and new earth. Notice that the redeemed role and privilege of these kings of the earth is to bring the glory and honor of the nations into the new heavens and the new earth. So let's for a moment just like think through this. Our our faith is also meant to be reasoned and, and thought through. So let's try to think realistically how Revelation 21 plays out. Here's this picture of kings and nations entering the new heavens and the new earth. So when the new heavens and the new earth come to be, question, will every king and queen and ruler in history have been a genuine Christ follower with genuine faith? No. Obviously, not every king and ruler in history was a genuine Christ follower. Will every king, queen, ruler in history enter the new heavens and new earth regardless of their faith? Is that what Revelation 21 is saying? What I'm trying to get at is trying to figure out together who are these kings and what are these nations in Revelation 21? 
Will Nero, for example, easy example to pick on, as far as we know, he didn't profess Jesus and he was a, a heinous murderer of Christians. Will he be in the new heavens and the new earth by virtue of just being a king? No. When Revelation says that the nations will be in the new heavens and new earth, does that mean every nation, including empires that are currently no longer like the Roman Empire, will they be present in the new heavens and the new earth? Have you heard of the countries of Anguilla, Bengal, Bohemia, Tavalora? I don't blame you if you haven't. I hadn't heard of them until I did some Google search. Probably not because these were all sovereign nations at one point in history, but they no longer exist now. So what I'm trying to get at is just to make us think a little bit more. Does that mean, Revelation 21, does it mean, for example, that all of Canada, the kings and nations will enter into the new heavens and the new earth, that all of Canada, every Canadian citizen since 1867, that will all be present in the new heavens and the new earth, and every prime minister that served our country? Now, in trying to answer these questions, what I can say for certain is, and this is my point, that only genuine believers who happen to be Canadian and genuinely Christian, or whatever nationality, who follow Jesus by grace through faith, filled with the Spirit, will be in the new heavens and new earth. So who are these kings and nations in Revelation 21? They are those who placed real faith in Jesus as their king of all kings, genuine spirit-filled Christians. And even if you weren't a geopolitical ruler on this earth, on this side of eternity, a Christian's destiny is to be restored to a pre-fall, Garden of Eden-like vice king as a co-heir with Jesus, the king of all kings. Just to prove it from scripture, Paul says it so clearly in Romans 8. And if children, meaning children of God by faith, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Remember, Christ is a title. It just means God's chosen king. You're a co-heir. You will be a vice king as a co-heir with Jesus Christ, the King of all kings, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And the nations, I don't know, the Bible doesn't say, will they be literal nations as defined, maybe just when Jesus returns, what are all the geopolitical boundaries and just the Christians from those nations will enter? We don't know. And I don't think it's necessary to have the clear answers to those questions. But what we can say with certainty, at least, is that the nations will be made of the multicultural church that Jesus has redeemed through history from across the world. Now, I'm unpacking all this, and I'm, I'm, I'm spending time on all this because this all leads to something very practical for you and me, for the church, for Christians. In terms of application, what we need to be focusing on is pursuing Christ's kingdom of faith in eternity. Not prioritizing with the wrong, misguided, or, or imbalanced purpose 
not prioritizing just trying to long for and wish for a Christianized culture and society. I mean, that's already happened once in history. And what I want you to appreciate is the difference between a world or a city or a country that's just Christianized, a kingdom of external works and forced behavior on this earth 1.0 before Christ returns, and that our heart, our burden, our prayer, our passion, our tears, and, and, and godly toil even, would be longing for a kingdom of faith, genuine Christians, more and more genuine, spirit-filled, repentant Christ followers. And so what needs to be our target, our aim, if we just keep this as our bullseye, I think it'll be hard for us to go off track. Our, Our bullseye has to be just going back to Jesus. It's simple. To build up Christ's church through the Great Commission and for the church to spread out. For Christians, whatever arena of life, whatever level of influence that God grants you, that we spread out as his life-preserving salt and exposing light. To continue to make spirit-filled disciples continuing to proclaim Jesus' gospel with prayers that hearts and minds and wills might turn to Jesus and place faith in him as Savior and King. We're to hold our longing for Jesus Christ one day for certain earthly kingdom on earth 2.0. Right now it's earth 1.0. There's going to be a new earth 2.0. We're to long for Jesus Christ one day for certain earthly kingdom on earth 2.0. But we're to hold that intention right now with trying to really live out and figure out what it means to build up his church. To build up a church filled with spirit-filled disciples of Jesus who seek to live here and now under his kingship. Now Psalm 2, it ends with leaving us wonderful motivation to keep at this. How do we live out Jesus' kingship in our lives day to day? Finally, by finding worshipful refuge in Jesus. Now, where do we see this? In the last half of uh, Psalm 2, just notice everything is now focused on God's king. I've set my king on Zion. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Speaking of Jesus, foretelling Jesus. Today I've begotten you. In fact, Peter and Paul both in Acts and another place, they use this psalm to speak of Jesus. They, this, this psalm for certain refers to Jesus. I'll make the nations your heritage. This is the Father God speaking to Jesus. That This, this is Jesus' inheritance to look forward to. And so the psalmist now exhorts us, be wise, be warned, kiss the Son, Blessed, supremely happy are all who take refuge in him. For sake of time, I'm going to keep this last point simple. And I just want to summarize it into one thought, one sentence. There is no refuge from 
Jesus the King. Only refuge in Jesus the King. I'll say it again. There is no refuge from Jesus the King. Only refuge in Jesus my King. Now let me unpack that just a bit. Who is the king that God Almighty has set on Zion on his holy hill? He is Jesus who was first, first set on a hill just outside of Zion. Zion is Jerusalem. He is Jesus who was first set on a hill just outside of Zion, just outside of Jerusalem, on Calvary, on the skull hill. Why? to die for you and me in our place for our sins. Who is the king that God has begotten? He is the only begotten son, Jesus, that he sent because he so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Who is the king who has every right to ask the Father God for the nations as his heritage, his inheritance, his kingdom over all the nation. Who's the one king who has every right to ask for that? He is the one truly pure, honest, righteous, perfectly moral king who is willing to humbly serve and suffer for his people, rejecting the worldly temptation of Satan to have worldly power the world's way. Do you remember in the wilderness? Satan offered all the kingdoms. It was a shortcut to having his rightful inheritance. But Jesus, unlike many earthly politicians, probably would go for that. But Jesus, no. Instead, he followed God's downward path of suffering, trusting that God would exalt him in due time as he is made king in God's way. Who is the king that we are there for as little kings of our little kingdoms and some of us maybe one day literal geopolitical kings of nations in history called to wisely fear and be warned of. He's the Jesus, the king of all kings, who after his suffering will surely bring every human soul to account. Not shy to hold back any of his eternally condemning wrath against those who do not place faith in him for grace and salvation. Jesus will not be shy. On that final day, when the time has come, he will not be shy to unleash his fury against those who mutter in vain behind his back. And so truly, there is no refuge from Jesus the King. Only refuge in Jesus, my King. And it's meant to be worshipful. How could it be anything but worshipful if we see Jesus as the one temptation-resisting, pure, wholesome servant King crucified for us out of the truest love? And so we're called to kiss the Son. The commentators say that kiss the Son could mean an expression of prostrate, prostrate worship. Whatever the translation, the message is the same. 
to adore Christ, that he would be our highest affection. He would be our deepest and most strongest felt allegiance in our hearts, our most wonderful attachment in adoring affection, even with a kiss, mixed beautifully with reverential fear. To remember that there's no refuge from the king, only refuge in the king. And so may we all find refuge in him today for all our days and forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And as we look forward to the joy, the delight, the glory of being as co-heir vice kings to reign with Jesus Christ in his kingdom, let us even now, in this day today, just keep on thinking through, how do I live this out? How do I live with Jesus as my king? Let's pray. Jesus, we say by faith, and I pray that you would stir this in all our hearts by your spirit, making it come alive in our minds, our hearts, our wills. You are my king, and your kingdom is near. Help us to live and see all of life through this lens of your kingship and your coming kingdom. Lord, help us to be followers of Jesus, disciples who do the good hard work of wrestling with trying to bridge all of you to all of life and how our jobs, our relationships, our resources, what you've given us to steward, how all of this is transformed wonderfully as we live with this lens of your kingship and your coming kingdom. So give us wisdom. We thank you that you are the one true king that is worthy, that we are happy to give all of ourselves to because you are true, you are pure, you are perfect. We worship you in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.